It's always good to keep the main thing the main thing, or the main one the main one. God is God. God is good. God is our Father. God is our Savior, our Redeemer. God is the Holy Spirit, who is the love of God poured in our hearts. Everything's going to be okay. I hope you take that away from this retreat that everything's going to be okay. But we need to focus on the main thing or the main one. And in this earthly pilgrimage, in this land of exile, we, you know, we pray the Hail Holy Queen. Uh, we recognize we're in a place of exile, a valley of tears. But Our Lady is our life, our sweetness, our hope. And she hears our cry. But she always points us to her son. Always points us to her son. And uh, today we'll continue these conferences on Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life. You ought to reflect on that. What, what does it mean to have a, a source of life? Are you drawing your life from that source? The summit of your life, the goal of your life. Do you keep the Eucharist as the goal of your life? Today, God willing, the morning conference will go through the luminous mysteries the midday conference, the sorrowful mysteries, and the uh, late afternoon conference, the glorious mysteries. Since we already have a foundation with the joyful mysteries, and all the mysteries are connected. When we spoke of the analogy of the Annunciation and the Incarnation to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, let me share with you that Our Lady had all of these things in her heart her whole life, the, whole, the life of Jesus as, as she listened and pondered and treasured. Those three words of Our Lady that describe her, listening, pondering, treasuring. In the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, we should have the whole mystery of Christ in our very being is contained in the Apostles' Creed, the mystery of the Trinitarian life revealed by Jesus. I was going to start this retreat as I start many retreats with Our Lady at the foot of the cross, and she's there with St. John, the beloved disciple, and of course, St. Mary Magdalene. And she's sitting there, and almost at eye level, she's looking up. After our Lord's heart is pierced, and out comes that blood and water, she's looking right into his heart. 
And she's looking right into the mysteries of divine and human love. And because she listened and pondered and treasured, she understood depths upon depths of the mystery of her vocation, of her role in relationship to the church, and how she needed to bring us, her children, along to understand those mysteries. She understood that when John, the beloved disciple, was given to her and and all of us were given to her, that she needed to help us understand those mysteries in the heart of Jesus. And we'll go into those uh, this afternoon, the sorrowful mysteries. But always enter into that heart of Jesus that's right here in the Most Holy Eucharist. And the Lord will speak to your heart. But have Our Lady help you penetrate those mysteries. So this morning we have the luminous mysteries, the mysteries of light. Really important that we have the light of Christ shining in us, that we have a vision of life enlightened by faith, enlightened by faith, that our reason is enlightened by faith. Faith and reason go together. In very tata splendor, the splendor of truth, St. John Paul II said that faith and reason are the two wings by which man soars to contemplate the truth. We need both wings. But faith is the stronger wing. But we're, we're created to soar and contemplate the truth because our Lord is the truth, the way, the truth, the life. And he says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth sets you free, right? It's the only way we'll have true freedom. Thank God that He's revealed the truth to us. And the truth is a person, not an idea. That, that's the challenge in the world right now. People just think it's ideas. A lot of that's because people relate to Jesus just as simply as an idea, as opposed to a living God who's present in the Eucharist. Pope Emeritus Benedict made clear that we're not just the people of the book. That's what the, the Muslims will call us, the people of the book. But it's far beyond the book. We're relating to a living God, a living God who's present, who's love. And so we move into mysteries of a living God But we need faith to enlighten our reason. We walk by faith, not by sight. Or I like to teach we walk by faith, not by flesh. When I say flesh, you know, our fleshly ideas, the the fleshly perceptions of things. Even in the spiritual life, we can become very fleshly. We can bring worldly ideas into our spiritual life 
Americans have the tendency, you know, because we're so efficiency-based, our, our, we, we identify ourselves based on utilitarianism, you know, our productivity. So even our spiritual life sometimes can be based on, you know, give me the, the 10 steps to holiness and I will implement them and I will achieve this goal on my own strength. That's a big error. Walk by faith and faith takes you beyond the visible, but yet faith is very reasonable. Everything in the faith is very reasonable. Faith does not contradict reason at all. Faith, in fact, helps us really see the ultimate meaning of life, and everything is very reasonable. We live in a world right now where so many people are just caught up in their feelings, and feelings are a gift from God, the total part of the total person, the total being. But a friend of mine has this little picture of a, a train in his office, and the engine of the train is faith. The cars of the train are facts. And the caboose of the train is feelings. But we live in a world right now where people are making feelings, the engine, the cars, and the caboose. <laughs> feelings can actually, you know, you can, sometimes you can you know, take it to the Lord. Lord, why am I feeling this way? And not like you're going to a psychologist, Lord, why am I feeling this way? But... Well, you know, there is, there is a lot in the subconscious that, that you just have this intuition that something's not right or that you're not loving the way you're supposed to love or you're not being loved the way you're supposed to be loved. And so you're going to have these feelings, but you don't just get caught up at that level. The higher faculties are your intellect and your will. But... Faith, hope, and charity are gifts from the Holy Spirit. And so we come to the first luminous mystery, the baptism of our Lord. This mystery should always recall our baptism and what a great gift that is to receive the Trinitarian life, to be free from the devil to become a child of the Father. You ought to reflect on what does that mean to be a child of the Father. And the Eucharist will teach you because Jesus is the, the eternal Son of the Father, the eternal, the only begotten. We're children by adoption, but let me address that. Some people have the, the wrong notion of adoption. Because we tend to think adoption is, you know, where some very charitable parents will adopt a child who lost their parents or never knew their parents, and uh, out of love, they're raising this child, and that's that's good. 
But you must understand that when there's an adoption, that means there's a choice. God made a choice to adopt us. There's actually a great dignity in being adopted by God. And of course, it was done by the price of Jesus' blood. We were purchased at a price. And uh, the call to be a child of God, Jesus, the little one in the Eucharist, will teach us to be the little, dependent, humble, trusting, surrendering, loving child. You can think of aspects of spiritual childhood. Humility, docility, simplicity, trust, surrender. You have a father who cares for you, who's concerned for you, and who has all power to be able to fulfill the needs that he placed in you and fulfill the plan that he has for you. And to teach you, he's done that in sending us his son, who is the image of the father, and we're to be images of the father and try to look for the image of the father in others. What a great father. Who has our best interest in mind, but yet, you know, What father is there that doesn't discipline their child? The word discipline and disciple relate to each other. The word disciple means learner. Discipline is a way to learn. Loving discipline. But yet, discipline. To be incorporated into Christ... In him, we live and move and have our being. We no longer live for ourselves. When we were baptized and we went into the water like Jesus went into the water, it represents our dying but then rising to a new life. Jesus humbles himself. Okay, there's John the Baptist at the Jordan, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. And there's all these people who are aware of their sins and they're lining up. And there's Jesus standing in line. He's not a sinner. (laughs) And then he comes to John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, let's do this so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. Focus on the Father's plan. That's the key doesn't matter what other people think about you. Focus on the Father's plan. John the Baptist recognized Jesus must increase. He must decrease. That's part of our life. Jesus must increase. We must decrease. The Eucharist teaches us that. Who's holding the world together right now? 
Jesus in the Eucharist, of course, the Father and the Holy Spirit. You can never separate Jesus from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, theologically, in the Most Holy Eucharist is Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. There's these seven aspects, body, blood, soul, divinity, where he's really, truly, and substantially present. Seven aspects. But concomitantly, that's a big word, but it's technical and it's necessary, where Jesus is, there is the Father and there's the Holy Spirit. So only Jesus assumed our human nature, only the second person of the Trinity. But that didn't add anything to God or take anything away from God. He did it for us. But where he is, there's the Father and there's the Holy Spirit. So when you receive our Lord in the Eucharist, you know, you're also receiving that fire of divine love that the Holy Spirit brings. So Jesus goes under the waters, comes up. Wow, here comes the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Just to show who Jesus is. Jesus already has the Holy Spirit. But he's showing us who we receive in our baptism. And yet, Jesus' soul, because he assumed our human nature, so he, he also assumed a soul created out of nothing by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' soul had infinite grace. As I talked about, Mary was on the threshold of the infinite. Jesus had infinite grace in his sacred humanity which you never separate from his divinity, but to understand technically that, you know, how, the, how the Holy Spirit is the soul of his soul, so to speak, and he's the soul of our soul. And he leads Jesus out to the desert before Jesus goes to his public ministry. He leads him out to the desert because he's teaching us. Again, everything Jesus does, he's teaching us by his actions. He teaches us by what he does and what he doesn't do. Jesus teaches us by what he says and what he doesn't say. He goes out to the desert and he overcomes all forms of temptation, showing us that we must overcome temptation before we can start out on public ministry. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to overcome all our temptations, but, you know, you do want to address, especially those, you know, at, at a period in your life, you want to go through a process of formation so that, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're able to have that victory in Christ. But remember, Christ has the victory, so you don't have to fight the battle. You just need to get in Jesus, who already has the victory. And the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift because there is an evil spirit in this world, and so we're given the Holy Spirit. And if you focus on the Holy Spirit, everything will be all right. Everything will be all right. So the Holy Spirit comes upon our Lord and the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Are you pleasing the Father in everything you do? Well, I would share with you that a key in the spiritual journey is contained right in the Lord's Prayer, the whole of the Lord's Prayer, but in particular, the first three 
petitions, we recognize our Father who art in heaven. Here's the first one. Hallowed be thy name. Let's, let's glorify the name of our Father by, by the fact that we bear his name as Catholics. We bear the name of God. Let's bring him honor and glorify him by the way we live a virtuous life, live our Catholic faith. It brings honor to the family. God is pure glory. And it's, but we're his children and we bear his name. Thy kingdom come. His kingdom's already here. But one definition of the kingdom of God, according to Pope Emeritus Benedict, is to have the lordship of Jesus in your life. Jesus is your lord. He's the king. The king makes the decisions. We don't make the decisions. Do you go to the Eucharistic king and ask him, what are your decisions, my king? You know, it's an honor to go into the king's court. It really is. It was always a privilege to go into the king's court and go before his throne. And you get to go before his throne as his child or... For example, his consecrated spouses, you go as his spouse before the king. Wow. We say, what would you like, my lord, my king? And he'll let you know. I would urge you when you go before the lord, give him a smile. Yeah. I, try, I try to come by, and, and when I'm kneeling, sometimes passing chapels, I try to smile. You know, I think that brings him great joy, just smiling. Pleasing the Father. And then the third is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So doing the Father's will is the way we love him. That's the key to sanctity. Glorifying God doing his will, and all that will happen if Jesus truly is your king and marries your queen. And so the first luminous mystery, the fruit of that mystery, is basically relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, but he's the third person of the Trinity, and we live in the day and age of the Holy Spirit. From the time Jesus ascended to the time he returns, this is known as the time of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into how we attribute certain things to certain persons of the Trinity, like creation we attribute to the Father, redemption to the Son, sanctification to the Holy Spirit. But everything is a Trinitarian work. The Trinity is involved. The only thing is that the, the second person of the Trinity is the only one who assumed our human nature. But as I said, that doesn't add anything to God or take anything away from God. But everything's a Trinitarian work. And even the incarnation, that was the Father's will, and the Holy Spirit was involved in, in the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, Okay. But you can think of your own baptism and how are you relating to the persons of the Trinity and Our Lady's going to help you. But how do you, how do you see the Eucharist? How do you see the Eucharist in that first luminous mystery? 
Well, the Eucharist is the source, they're coming back to the source and summit of our life. And so you were baptized, but that's where you began your Trinitarian life. But you must grow, you must be nourished, you must be formed and transformed. How are you going to grow? You need food. Jesus is the bread of life, food for the journey, the one who gives us his life so that we continue to grow in our baptism because our baptism was an incorporation into Christ. And in that incorporation, we are children of the Father and we receive the Holy Spirit and we receive faith, hope, and charity, great gifts, great gifts the Holy Spirit brings us. And Our Lady will help you understand the importance of living your baptism. That's a way we were redeemed. You've heard that scripture. We had it, I think, this last week. You know, every, every human has sinned and they're in need of redemption. Every human has the need for redemption. Mary was redeemed in a special way by a prevenient grace in the Immaculate Conception, but it was based on the death of Jesus on the cross. But it was done in a special way. We were redeemed in our baptism, but we must grow and develop living our baptism and have that real relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the way we grow and develop is living the Eucharistic life. And so Our Lady, whose spouse of the Holy Spirit and temple of the Holy Spirit will help us understand the gift of the Eucharist that is the source, the source of our supernatural life and the summit of our supernatural life, which is helping us live our baptism. There's three mysteries that I would like you to reflect on at some other point or sometime today when you have, have some time, but um, actually for the rest of your life. There's the mystery of being consecrated that happened in baptism. You were consecrated, and then, as I said, many deepen their consecration through consecrating themselves to Jesus, the eternal wisdom, through Mary, according to St. Louis Marie de Montfort, or... St. Maximilian Kolbe or, or other forms of consecration, or those who have joined the religious life, that's a form of consecration, but it's all building upon baptism. In fact, let me note, make this note, a priest cannot live his priesthood the way he's supposed to live his priesthood unless he's living his baptism the way he's supposed to be living his baptism. Everything builds on baptism. The second mystery is the Paschal mystery, which has five aspects. There's one mystery, but there's five aspects. The suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. It's called the Paschal mystery, not the Paschal mysteries. You keep it all connected. The suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. 
that's all contained in the Eucharist. And then the Eucharistic mystery, the third mystery, the Eucharistic mystery, we're going through many aspects of the Eucharist, but there's also the aspect of the apostolic gathering of the Father's family in the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that. But the apostolic gathering of the Father's family in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is basically to continue the work of Jesus, the work of redemption, and to continue the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the work of sanctification. And so you want to have the Eucharistic heart of Jesus in living those mysteries. The second luminous mystery, the wedding feast at Cana. Interesting question. Why was Jesus' first public miracle to change water into wine? I mean, he could have, his first public miracle could have been to raise somebody from the dead. His first public miracle could have been to cast out demons. His first public miracle could have been to, you know, heal lepers. His first public miracle could have been just to levitate up into the middle of the sky and, you know, show his divinity. Jesus does everything for a reason. His first public miracle, water into wine. Hmm. Well, what's the context of this miracle? A wedding feast. What is at the heart of the plan of God in many ways is to bring about the wedding between God and man. Right? And a wedding should be a joyous occasion. And, uh, God came to bring us joy of being in communion with him. Joy is really being in union with the Father that Jesus makes possible in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's one way to look at joy. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, so it's a wedding feast. But they're running out of wine. Wine was very important, not for reasons we think it's important in this day and age, but in those days, the celebration would be such that, you know, the banquet might last a week or more where everybody would come to the, the married couple and the married couple would give them like a glass of wine and they would talk to each other about, you know, this blessing God gave them. And, and I mean, people would be coming through, you know, day after day after day. And it was important to have wine there. Wine is the fruit of the vine in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass that one of the Eucharistic prayers talks about, you know, this fruit of the vine. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, right? The fruit of the vine. But this joy comes from a big word, vivaciousness, a vigor, a vigor that wine brings. 
Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. They were running out of wine because they were, became so legalistic, rigidly legalistic, they lost sight of grace and the need for grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to give us the new law of grace and love. And so they were running out of wine. Mary, our mother, who is so attentive to every detail, like a good mother is attentive to every detail, sees they're running out of wine. But she knows the deeper reality of what's going on. And she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, now in, 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 in the Hebrew, there's, there's actually not a lot of um, words in the way that we put words together in sentences. But basically, Jesus' reply was, Woman, what to me to you? What to me to you? What to me to you? Which means if I do this public miracle, we're going to the cross. Are you ready? What does Mary do? It says she turned towards the disciples She's teaching the disciples. That's us. She turned towards the disciples and she said, do whatever he tells you. She's already teaching us. Right? Those are the last recorded words of our blessed mother in scripture. Do whatever he tells you. Wow. Sometimes when I'm teaching the rosary, I'll I'll use my ten fingers. And I'll say, you know, God in his wisdom, you know, gave us these ten fingers. So if you're not carrying a rosary, you can pray the rosary. But also, you have the words of Our Lady, do whatever he tells you, five words. And what does he tell us? You did it to me. Do whatever he tells you, you did it to me. Now you can pray your rosary. And so Mary is saying, yes, I'm ready to go to the Paschal Mystery. I'm ready to go to the cross with you. We can trust Mary's intercession. That's the fruit of that mystery, trusting in Mary's intercession. And Jesus tells them to take the jars, 20 to 30-gallon jars, fill them with water, and bring them to him. Interestingly, the water jars were there for the purification rituals of the Old Testament. So what Jesus is doing is he's going to take the the rituals of the Old Testament and now show the new law of grace and love by changing the water into wine. And then we know the wine 
offered at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass with a drop of water in it to represent, the water represents the humanity, our humanity, the wine represents the divinity at the Mass, becomes the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Okay, we call it the blood of Christ, but remember in each species is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ really, truly, and substantially present. But an important point is that the servants obeyed and they filled the jars to the brim. When we obey, good things happen. And that's the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is here obedient to love. In fact, at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, it's amazing. He's obedient to the priest. He's, I'm a priest. He created me. When I pronounce those words, now he pronounces those words in me, in persona Christi Capitus. But nonetheless, when I elevate our Lord, who's consecrated in the most holy sacrifice of the Mass, it's such a marvel. He's the one who created me. I'm holding up the one who created me. I couldn't exist without him. And yet he's obedient to a man. Wow. Obedience, what a blessing. But the joy that flows from the relationship of Mary to the Eucharist. Remember, the whole focus of this retreat is Mary, mother of the Eucharist. And the wedding feast at Cana really has so many aspects of Mary as mother of the Eucharist. In fact, this chapter 6 of Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the Church of the Eucharist, we have in number 54, which I didn't address yet, the Holy Father says this, Mysterium Fidei, okay, we proclaim the mystery of faith during the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass. We proclaim your death, O Lord, we profess your resurrection until you come again. By the way, how are you proclaiming his death? Are you dying to yourself? That's the best way to proclaim his death. How are you professing his resurrection? I told you the church is in in crisis. The crisis is we're not proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. How are, we, how are we proclaiming the new life? And until he comes again, do we have that faith? He's coming again. Everything's going to be all right. So St. John Paul II says, if the Eucharist is a mystery of faith, which so greatly transcends our understanding as to call for sheer abandonment to the word of God, Remember, faith enlightens understanding. But we sang yesterday evening, during evening prayer, that Eucharistic hymn composed by St. Thomas Aquinas. Remember the point that senses fail us. This mystery is so great. But it makes sense. The greatest minds in the history of the world believed in the Most Holy Eucharist. But it basically comes with believing in the word of God. Read St. John's Gospel, chapter 6. 
read the Eucharistic discourses and St. Paul's account of the institution of the Eucharist or the words of consecration. So we abandon ourselves to the word of God. We believe God because he's God and he spoke and we believe what God speaks. The Holy Father goes on to say, then there can be no one like Mary to to act as our support and guide in acquiring this disposition. Abandonment to the word of God. Mary is the woman who abandons herself to the word of God, right? In repeating what Christ did at the Last Supper in obedience to his command, do this in memory of me, we also accept Mary's invitation to obey him without hesitation. Do whatever he tells you. St. John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. With the same maternal concern which she showed at the wedding feast of Cana, Mary seems to say to us, do not waver. Trust in the words of my son. If he was able to change water into wine, he can also turn bread and wine into his body and blood. And through this mystery, bestow on believers the living memorial of his Passover, thus becoming the bread of life. So there's your Eucharistic connection of Mary and Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana. Trusting in the words of God, but trusting in Mary's intercession, going to God. And then we listen, we ponder, we treasure, and God works miracles. And the greatest miracle is the Most Holy Eucharist right before our eyes at every Mass, a miracle has worked. The proclamation of the kingdom, the third luminous mystery. I'll develop some of this during the homily today because we're going to celebrate the North American martyrs. Where did all the martyrs gain the strength to proclaim the kingdom of God despite tremendous Tortures, persecution, tortures, oppositions, contradictions. You know, one of the keys to mortification, I mean, to to purification, is mortification, which means death to self and your own will and your own ego. I tell you, my prayer is actually that the Lord annihilate my will and my ego. That's a hard prayer to make but I know I need it because I'm so full of self-love. But I ask him to annihilate my will and my ego. I talked yesterday about Mary being immaculate without stain. What stains the work of God in my life? My will and my ego. I like to use letters to remember things. I think of, I like the, the word mud M-U-D in this context. It seems like I put mud on the works of God because my will and my ego is mean, 
ugly and destructive mud. My will and my ego is mean, ugly, and destructive. You get in my way, and I'm just pure self-will, like a lot of people in this world. I'm glad my friend's smiling back there. And I'm not just going to blame it on the fact that I grew up in Detroit, but so many people in this world, you get in my way, mean, ugly, destructive. Whew. Is that the way of God? Is God mean? Is God ugly? Is God destructive? No. My will and my ego, my self-love. You know. And sometimes we even, people even will joke about it, you know. It's like, you know, their attachments, the things we're attached to, even in our little attachments in our self-love, like, you know, the morning cup of coffee, okay? I know I'm going into, into into dangerous ground right here, but, you know, they'll even have, you know, people will say, don't talk to me till I've had my coffee. Really? Husbands and wives, you're not supposed to talk to each other till you've had your coffee, huh? That's interesting. Really? We're supposed to be relating to each other. Coffee is not more important than a relationship. So we need mortifications. We need opposition to our will. We need contradictions. Contradiction in Latin. Contradiction means to speak against. People speaking against my own ideas, opposing me. You know, mortification, opposition, contradiction. I need detachment, which is a process of purification. And other aids that God gives, persecutions, to purify me from my will and my ego and my self-love so I can really proclaim the kingdom of God freely. When I'm free from earthly attachments and I'm moved by faith, hope, and charity, which is what's given in the Eucharist. The Lord in the Eucharist will help you be detached from this world so you can proclaim the kingdom of God We're proclaiming the kingdom of God. Why does God send us out two by two? We talked about that because the two primary commandments are love of God and love of neighbor. We're witnessing the the commandments of love. But also, why does he send us out without anything? Carry nothing with you, he goes on. In describing a number of things we're not supposed to carry. Why? Because we're proclaiming the kingdom of God. We're not proclaiming the world. If we walk out in the world with all kinds of worldly things, we're proclaiming the world. And so, I, I like to use the example of Matthew, the tax collector, when he was called by God to follow him. Matthew was behind this table collecting taxes. Nobody liked him. Nobody respected him. The Jews saw him as a traitor. The Romans... Psalm is just a tool. But also imagine, you know, here's the fisherman working all night long on the Sea of Galilee coming in, and there's the tax collector sitting with his table saying, give me my share. You're not going to be so happy. And so Jesus looks at Matthew with love, and he sees all the potential in Matthew, and he looks at him with love, and he says, follow me. And he sees the real potential of Matthew, 
And Matthew gets up and follows him. But it doesn't say Matthew got up and carried his table with him and said, okay. Everybody laughs when I share that. But I mean, really, what an image, right? I mean, you know, could you imagine, you know, I don't need anything. I'm going to follow you, Lord, except, except for this table. What are we proclaiming? Dependence on God. Why does God say don't move from house to house? Because the proclamation is so important. We don't have time to be changing houses to houses because it takes time to change houses. Just get one, settled in one place and then go to work. But Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom because he's the king. Here's the king right before us, the Eucharistic king, and Mary's the queen. And Mary's going to point you to the king. And he, the kingdom has seven aspects. You can read this in the preface of Christ the King. It's also in Vatican II. Here's the seven aspects of the kingdom of God. Truth and life. You can remember those easy because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Truth and life. Holiness and grace. Justice and love and peace. Truth and life, holiness and grace, justice and love and peace. That's what we proclaim. And the Lord will teach you how to proclaim the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom with his Eucharistic presence right now. And Mary the Queen is going to help you understand the way of the king. And you pray the scriptures before the Lord in the Eucharist. And this means having a Eucharistic heart at all times. In the room where I'm staying here at this retreat center, I turned my chair towards the chapel because the Lord is in the Eucharist and those walls can't stop my relationship with the Lord in the Eucharist. So that's normally what I do whenever I... When I have to go and give a retreat, I try to think of where's the nearest tabernacle near me. And I turn the chair towards that tabernacle because those walls can't stop the Lord. Just like that tabernacle can't stop you from relating to the Lord. And I have this Eucharistic relationship with the Lord. And I can be, be doing my morning meditations or my prayer or my reflection on the word of God. And the whole reflection on the word of God is how to be moved in the Holy Spirit to continue the redemptive mission of Christ. Okay. Mount Tabor. Such a Eucharistic, such a Eucharistic mystery. All the mysteries are Eucharistic. Mary will help you understand. You know what the name of the stand that our Lord in the monstrance is is on right now. You know what technically that stand is called? I know some of you know, but it's called a Tabor, Mount Tabor. That's the technical name. It's a Tabor. The Lord took Peter, James, and John, and will take you up the mountain to give you a, a glimpse of the glory to which you're called. In the Eucharist, every time you're before the Eucharist, you get a glimpse of that glory, so you'll be strengthened to come down from Mount Tabor and go to another mountain, Mount Calvary, which we'll be talking about in the next conference. But there's the law and the prophets represented by 
Moses and Elijah. But the only way to really live the law and the prophets is to understand grace and truth that Jesus brings that you hear about in John's gospel in the prologue. Jesus came in grace and truth. Grace helps us live the commandments, the law, and the truth of the prophets who proclaimed the coming Messiah is now revealed in Jesus. But really at the heart of that whole relationship, this Eucharistic relationship going up to Mount Tabor where you really see the Eucharist on Mount Tabor, the glory of God shining on the face of Christ, What you really see, according to Pope Emeritus Benedict, is you see what's at the core of the identity of Jesus. You see his prayer life, his relationship with the Father. And the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And now this time he says, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to the Eucharistic heart of Jesus. Understand the word of God. The cloud on the mountain represents the Holy Spirit. When you see a cloud, it usually represents the Holy Spirit. But then there's also the apostles, Peter, James, and John. And so you have both the Old Testament pointing to Jesus and the New Testament pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. The New Testament, Peter, James, and John pointing to Jesus as God. You get a glimpse of his Godhead in the Eucharist. And Mary will help you understand this mystery. All these mysteries of light, Mary will help you understand because one translation of the name Mary, I've researched this many times because I love Our Lady. What does the name Mary mean? You know, many people accurately point out it relates to the word mare, which means a sea. Because she's a sea filled with grace and favor by God. Relating to the word Miriam, which also means sorrow. She's Our Lady of Sorrows. But St. Thomas Aquinas says that the name Mary means the illuminated one. The illuminated one. And the illuminated one can illuminate us a mystery of light. She will illuminate you. She was well aware of the prayer life between Jesus and the Father in the Holy Spirit. Imagine the the prayers of the Holy Family from the time Jesus was a young little infant. Imagine them praying the Psalms together. You know how we chant the Psalms in our Liturgy of the Hours? Imagine the Holy Family praying those Old Testament psalms and the Old Testament canticles and giving praise to God. Wow. So it's a mystery of light, but that's what you get to see at every Eucharist. At every Eucharist, you go up, every Eucharistic adoration, you go up to Mount Tabor. But then in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, you actually receive that one, Jesus Christ, who is revealing the glory of the Father in the Holy Spirit. And you have communion, common union with him. 
Mary will help you understand this mystery of light, all these mysteries of light. She's the illuminated one, and she'll help you. I remember I had the good fortune. It was Providence. Some young man's car broke down near our headquarters in Corpus Christi, Texas, and he asked me if I would give him a ride to his house. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was giving him, giving him transportation. And uh, I said, you know, you're always invited to the Catholic Church. I try to say that all the time. You know, you're always invited to the Catholic Church wherever I go when I pay for gas. You're always invited to the Catholic Church. You know, I'm not here to argue. Just you're always invited to the Catholic Church where I go. You know, you're invited to the Catholic Church. And so I'm driving along, and, 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 I, and I said, uh, somehow, I, you know, of course, I brought up our Blessed Mother. And he said, can I ask you a question? I go, sure. He goes, what's so special about Mary? And I just smiled, right? Great. Oh, I just love that question. You know, and I just started, first of all, like, well, think about this. She had God in her womb for nine months. Don't you think that makes a difference in a person's life? Right? God chose her to be the mother of his only begotten son. And if you had a child and you were going to entrust your child to somebody, wouldn't you be very, very particular about who you were going to entrust your child to? That's an important decision, right? And I went on from there. But you have to meet people at natural levels, you know? I remember being on a plane, and I'm explaining the mysteries of the rosary, and I'm going into the Bible belt, maybe even the Bible buckle. And I love, the, you know, I love them when they love the Bible. And, um, you know, I'm talking to this man about the mysteries of the rosary, and, you know, the first 18 are straight from Scripture, and the last two are the fulfillment of Jesus' promises to someone who lives those mysteries. That's what the last two are. But when we got to the 19th and 20th mystery, you know, of course, you know, where's that in Scripture? Well, of course, you can point to Revelation 12, and you can point to other, other scriptural, you know, the Song of Songs and, and other, other, other scriptural things that refer to the 19th and 20th mysteries, you know, the, the 19th mystery, you know, it says, you know, uh, basically that whole scripture about everyone taken to heaven in their proper order, right? You know, Jesus first, then everybody in their proper order. The next, order, next would be Mary, of course, right? And then Revelation 12 and the coronation, but where's that in the Bible? Okay, well, that's where it is. But, you know, I got to that point, and so then he said, well, what, you know, Moses was, was a great man, a friend of God. What, what's the difference between Moses and Mary? And I said, well, again, Moses didn't have Jesus in his womb for t- nine months. I just start there. <laughs> Jesus lived with Mary, <laughs> you know, Till his public ministry and Mary was so connected with him right at the foot of the cross. We all know this, but you have to meet people where they are. So Mary's going to help you understand the mystery of the transfiguration. And one thing you can think about the transfiguration is remember that we were disfigured by sin 
So we need to, need to be transfigured by the Eucharist. We go from our disfiguration to a transfiguration in a certain way. And then the fifth luminous mystery we talked about already. The Holy Father in chapter 6 specifically chose to have as a mystery of light the institution of the Eucharist. That's what this whole conference has been about. We've been talking about the institution of the Eucharist in the context of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the importance of that, how all these mysteries are connected. But part of the mystery of light does relate to, as what I've shared with you, it goes all the way to the first glorious mystery, and the only way to get there is through the sorrowful mysteries. Are the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Right? The mystery of light. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. When I die, I hope that's the gospel at my funeral mass. Because as a priest, that's so special that you know that that should be my life. That in the breaking of the bread, Jesus is recognized by the way I'm sacrificed. Celebrating the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, right? Recognizing him in the breaking of bread. Even though their hearts were set on fire as Jesus is opening up all of Scripture to them. All the fullness is in the Eucharist. All the fullness is in the Eucharist. There is the Word of God made flesh. Talk about light. You want light into the word of God? There is the word of God made flesh. He's going to give you the best retreat for the rest of your life after this retreat. I'm hoping he's actually giving you this retreat right now. Because I'm nothing. I mean, we don't even need to... There's a Latin saying, race ipsa loquitur. Which means the thing speaks for itself. Race is the thing Ipsa loquitur, loquitur is to speak. Race ipsa loquitur. The fact that I'm nothing speaks for itself. <laughs> the fact that he's God and can teach you everything speaks for itself. <laughs> Let him continue to teach you. But I'm trying to help you understand the mysteries of the rosary because all of you love the rosary and the rosary is going to help you understand Our Lady as Mother of the Eucharist. Because she's going to say, do whatever he tells you. How can you know what he tells you unless you're praying on the word of God and then understanding the word of God that becomes flesh and so then you can live the word of God doing whatever he tells you and bringing Jesus to others in the Eucharistic mystery of your life. We could spend weeks just on that fifth luminous mystery. But it's kind of a miracle in an hour. We went through five decades. Thank you, Lord. So we'll try to uh, convene again this afternoon a couple times and go through the rest of the mysteries. But the last point I do want to share with you, I find it very interesting that at the heart of the 20 mysteries, all the mysteries are connected. They're all one. The mystery of Christ is one. But 
the 10th mystery, right there at the, right at the center, is the Eucharist, right? Don't forget that either. Out of 20 mysteries, the 10th, right there at the heart of it, is the Eucharist. Pretty amazing, pretty awesome. God is just amazing. 